from like up the stairs. Pretty crazy, right? I think so. I don't know. Yeah. Okay, I think I've Because we were like, oh, well, the next time we come, we're going to come with Emma. And she's going to be like four, you know, and she's going to want to see all the things. Because of our really low. So we're at the wrong airport. Like, what do you do when you're at the wrong airport? You know when it takes the picture at the top? There is this person's hand right in front of my face. And I go, standing next to her, and I was like, what are you doing? You're creeping out. Thank you, though. You didn't ask, like, no. <laughs> One of the kind of amazing things that I feel like I've experienced that I think is like a spiritual thing or a God thing is like the bridge got shut down because there was like this massive oil tanker that like caught on fire. We were praying and, and all of a sudden like the clouds like part. Like I mean this is like weird. It was like the clouds part and we could see base camp. It is good to have you here on this September morning. Crazy to think we're already in September. Thanks for being here in Bellingham. Those of you in Skagit, glad that you've joined us in Boca Raton as well. And those who are joining us with the live stream, many of you uh, on vacation this weekend, thanks for tuning in with us and being a part of us uh, today as we continue and conclude this series of stories worth telling. In the 1920s, our country was in the throes of prohibition. And uh, in the mid-20s, there was a man named James Smith Whitenack in Oklahoma. He owned a store, Barton's store in Butler, Oklahoma. And it was a legitimate store, but it was also kind of a storefront because his main source of income is that he was a bootleg moonshiner, big time, in Oklahoma. He also was very involved with greyhounds at the racetrack, a lot of gambling. And in 1927, in the summer of 1927, Whitenack discovered that there was some of his moonshine that had gone missing. It was unaccounted for. And we're not talking about a couple brown jugs, and we're not talking about a barrel. Somewhere between two and 400 gallons of his moonshine was gone. <clears throat> so he confronted his partner, Harrison Hicks, at the, uh, at the Barton store there in Butler, Pennsylvania, on July 29, 1927. And that confrontation became an argument, which became accusations, which actually became an altercation. And in the midst of that altercation, that heated uh, argument, uh, Harrison Hicks pulled out a pistol and shot at, at uh, James Smith Whitenack and missed him. Whitenack pulled out his pistol and on that day shot and killed Harrison Hicks there in the Barton store, Butler, uh, uh, Oklahoma. And he promptly took his pistol and threw it in the pickle barrel. Now... Whitenack got arrested and went to trial for murder, even though they didn't have a murder weapon. The weapon wasn't found for several years. Those pickles always had a metallic taste to them. For years, they didn't know where the weapon was, but he went to trial, and he stood trial, and while he was on trial, there was a little girl, 13-year-old girl named Lucille, Lucille Whitenack, who was called to testify under oath against her daddy. And because of her testimony, as well as others, Whitenack was found guilty uh, uh, of, of murder and was sent up the river. So in 1927, here's this, this bootlegging uh, moonshiner who's a convicted felon who's involved with gambling in the racetrack and murders a man. And this man, James Smith Whitenack, was my great-grandfather. And this little girl was my mamma seal. Now, hold that story. We'll come back to it. 
So this week is the end of our 13-week series, Stories Worth Telling. We've been looking at this all throughout the summer months. And in fact, today is the second half of a really long sermon. Uh, if you weren't here last week, this is part two. Now, if you weren't here last week, don't walk out now, because uh, I think you can still maybe get something out of the second half, hopefully. Uh, and don't tune out and don't turn off. Uh, in fact, whatever you do, if you weren't here last week and you're saying, man, I missed the first half and this really makes you upset, whatever you do, don't grumble. I'm just telling you. Because the Bible says in 1 Corinthians 10, and do not grumble as some of them did and were killed by the destroying angel. Be warned. Don't grumble. These things happened to them as an example and were written down as warnings for us on whom the fulfillment of the ages has come. That's Jesus. Now, the reason I say that and the reason I point to this and the reason some of these people are laughing is because this is the story that we covered last week. It talks about it kind of encryptedly of this story, and it's referred to as Korah's Rebellion. And real brief, quick synopsis of last week. Korah was a man who was chosen. He and his family were chosen by God, brought near to God for God's purposes. But Korah stirs up this rebellion, stirs up this dissension amongst the ranks and has about 250 men with him. Uh, we only know the names of a few of them, but Korah is the ringleader. And he's got this, uh, this, this attitude where he's upset about Moses and Aaron, but the reality of the issue is that he shows contempt towards God. And his big issue is this, and their big issue is, while they are doing these tasks that God has called them to, while God has called them near to him to do his purposes, they feel like they're menial tasks, they're behind-the-scenes tasks, and they want to be up front like Moses and Aaron. And so they're really upset. Now, this story of what happens is actually recounted several times in the Old and New Testament. Here in 1 Corinthians is one. Again, in Jude, we'll look at it in a minute. But also in the Old Testament. And it's almost always told as a story, as a warning. Like, don't do this. In fact, uh, where we concluded last week was in Numbers 26. It says, Dathan and Abiram, these were a few of the people that were a part of the 250, were the community officials who rebelled against Moses and Aaron and were among Korah's followers when they rebelled against the Lord. Then it gives a brief synopsis of the details. The earth opened up its mouth and swallowed them along with Korah, whose followers died when the fire devoured the 250 men, and they served as a warning sign. It's this warning of, listen, don't show contempt towards God. Don't live in this act of rebellion and arrogance and obstinance towards the things of God and what he's called you to and the life that he's invited you to live. It's just this warning, like, stop, don't do this. And in the midst of this very dark story, because it is a really dark story, as we saw last week, God in his goodness weaves these grace notes in. The one we looked at last week was right after this when Aaron, the priest, goes through and makes atonement and it was this, this precursor, this picture of what Jesus would do. It was a microcosm of the meta-narrative of what God is doing in the world in all of creation. But there's also another little grace note as Korah in his rebellion, while he is warned, while he's given a chance and he just stands his ground and God says, enough of that, and the, and the earth just engulfed him. There's this other grace note in verse 11. The line of Korah, however, did not die out. His bloodline, his family tree, while maybe it could have and maybe it should have, it doesn't die out. And there's a section of this story that the Bible leaves out that we're left to conjecture and speculation on. Why is it? How is it? What happened here? Was it that his sons, his immediate sons, were too young and they were not accountable for their father's actions? Maybe. 
Was it that his sons were old enough, but they had enough vision and wisdom and insight to see that while we love our dad, what he's doing is wrong and we're not going to be a part of it? Maybe. Was it the fact that maybe they were a part of that original rebellion, but when Moses says, hey, you know, get your censors, they're like, yeah, we know what happened to our distant cousins on that one. We're not going to do it. Maybe. When Moses backed all the people out, where they say, you know, maybe we'll join this group, we don't know. Maybe it was nothing short of the grace of God that says, while Korah is such a rebel, while his bloodline ought to be washed out, I, in my grace and mercy and goodness and love, I'm just going to extend my grace and continue on and fulfill my plan and my purposes, even through his bloodline. What we do know is this, that God is sovereign, he is omnipotent, And no matter what he wants to do, his plan will go forward regardless of what we do because he is that kind of a God. But the line of Korah continues on. So throughout the Old Testament now, as you read it, if you have that filter on, you'll often see this word, it talks about this line of Korah, the Korahites. It's it's his lineage, it's his descendants, it's his bloodline. And in the book of Psalms, you'll often see this little phrase, the sons of Korah. Which makes me wonder, why would they be referred to as the Korahites, and why would they be referred to as the sons of Korah? Why would they use that name as like the one that identifies them? Because they also are at times referred to as Levites. Why not just hang with that? That's a good one. That's the priestly tribe. At times they're talked about as the Kohathites, and they are too. That was the bloodline. But why Levi? Do you understand what I'm saying? I mean, I mean why, why Korah? Korah was the black sheep of the family. Korah was the chapter that no one wants to talk about. Korah's name is synonymous with rebellion, with, with, um, with judgment and condemnation. As far as I have found, and I haven't like searched the whole entirety of scripture with this, this uh, lens in mind, but every time Korah is mentioned in the Bible, there's never ever anything good said in relation to Korah. So why would they be called the Korahites? Why would they be called the sons of Korah? I mean, and and when I think about this, I think, if my last name, and and I'm not trying to be political here or anything, but if my last name was Bin Laden, I think I'd go by my mom's maiden name, or at least change it to something a little less descript, you know, like Smith or Jones or McCormick or something like that. So why hang with this name, Korah? Because it's just synonymous with bad. Like in the book of Jude, and I... I know you guys were just reading that this morning. Jude is this tiny little obscure book that's tucked way in the back of the New Testament, and most people would fly right over it because it's got to get to Revelation or whatever. Jude is this one-chapter book, and in the book of Jude, there's this warning about these false teachers and evil men who are making their way into the church. And in the midst of that, in Jude verse 11, he says, woe to them. And just a little, little side note for your Bible study needs. Whenever you read in the Bible, woe, woe to them, woe are you, woe, that, it's not like, whoa, big fella. I mean, there's a, that's like a secondary meaning. Woe in the Bible means, oh, no, there's in, in, impeding doom. It's like this. If you were on the fourth floor of a building looking out and you saw a four-way stop at an intersection and there was a car stopped and there was a distracted driver that's barreling down the road this way. This car has made a stop. He's looked around. He's going forward and this guy does not see it. There's this part he's like, oh no, because you know what's going to happen. You see this is not going to be good. This is going to be a disaster. Whenever you hear the word woe in the Bible, that's what it is. When Jesus says to the Pharisees, woe to you, he's like, do you not see it? When Isaiah 
sees the Lord, he says, woe to me. He's like, this isn't going to be good. I'm disintegrating. Anyway, Jude says, woe to them. Oh, no, this is not good. And then look who he lists. They have taken the way of Cain. Cain, the first man ever to be born, the first man ever to take a life. He's banished and he's marked for life with a curse. They have rushed for profit into Balaam's error. Those of you who are familiar with Balaam, you immediately think donkey, and that's a part of the story as well. But in Revelation chapter 2, when Jesus is talking to the church in Pergamum, he says, listen, some of you have followed Balaam's teaching, which has caused the Israelites to be led astray to eat meat sacrifice idols and to go into sexual immorality, which caused a plague amongst them. That's what he's talking about here. And then he adds in, they have been destroyed in Korah's rebellion. This is like the who's who of the bad boys of the curse throughout the, the Old Testament. And he's, he's, he's put in there. So why? Why in this dark story with this name that has just such negative connotations, why would they be referred to as the sons of Korah and the Korahites? And I think maybe part of the reason is, is that with the Korahites and the sons of Korah, it's a story of grace and redemption. That what we see is that in this dark story that our God is so good and so merciful and so gracious and so powerful that he can take the most egregious person, the most egregious family line, the most egregious situation, circumstance, sin, rebellion, uh, waywardness, stubbornness, and he in his greatness can turn that around, work the circumstances in such a way that it brings about glory for him and fulfills his purposes that we will see that. So what I want us to do today as we look at the rest of the story, because last week was Korah, I want us to look at the rest of the story, and what I want us to look at as we, as we talk about the Korah Heights, this line that was not wiped out, the sons of Korah, I want to look at specifically three individual sons of Korah. And when I say sons, they're not like his immediate kids, but it's in the bloodline. They're referred to as the sons of Korah. Three individual sons of Korah, and then a general group of the sons of Korah. And I hope, I hope, I hope that I don't get too bogged down. See, I love all the details and I get down in there. I hope I don't chase too many rabbits and get us bogged down in because we're going to cover a lot of ground in hundreds of years. But can you hang with me? Questionable. All right. <laughs> let's try this. All right. So let's look, uh, look at this. And we'll start with, with Shalom. Shalom was a gatekeeper. Shalom was a gatekeeper. Now, sometimes we hear gatekeeper, maybe we're thinking like a bouncer, someone who's taking tickets, security guard, uh, mall cop, you know, just kind of like we just need a, an able body to stand here in front of the door and just kind of, it was a lot more than that. All right. In Chronicles, it says this about Shalom. Shalom, son of Kor, the son of um, this guy, the son of Korah. So Shalom's great-grandfather is Korah. He's the, the rebellious guy. He's the great-grandson son of Korah, and his fellow gatekeepers from his family, the Korahites. So this is what one of the tasks that they do. This is one of the tasks that Korah was rebelling against. Why are we having these little tasks? We're, we're standing here guarding the door. Why can't we be like Aaron and Moses? They were responsible for guarding the thresholds of the tent. Now, this isn't just your Coleman pop-up tent that's in the KOA. This is a very specific tent. Just as their fathers had been responsible for guarding the entrance to the dwelling of the Lord. 
So the tent we're talking about here is the tent of meeting, the tabernacle. It's, it's what God had instructed them to do, to put in the middle of the camp where, where God's uh, dwelling place would be. And they're called to this very, um, very sacred duty of being gatekeepers at the, at the very uh, dwelling of the Lord. It goes on. It says the gatekeepers had been assigned to their positions. Look at who, who assigns them to this. The king of the nation and the prophet of God. This is a very important thing. He doesn't just say, yeah, just grab some people with a pulse. Just kind of, you know, just do a little draft. The king of the nation, David, and, and the prophet, Sam, who speaks on God's behalf to the people, they are the ones that pick them out. And they're given this position of trust. They and their descendants were in charge of guarding the gates of the house of the Lord, the house called the tent. So again, you see the sacredness, the importance of this role, and who even hand-selects them. It says one more thing. But the four principal gatekeepers who were Levites were entrusted with the responsibility for the rooms and the treasuries in the house of God. Now, of these four principal gatekeepers, the chief of the four is Shalom. So he's like high up in this deal. And he's a son of Korah. Now, I will say this. In about, I don't know, 20 minutes or so, I'm going to give you a quiz. There's one question on the quiz. So let me give you the answer now so you're guaranteed an A. Here's the question on the quiz. What did Shalom do? And the answer is, he was a gatekeeper in the house of God. So let's practice that. Hey, let's say we're doing a quiz. What did Shalom do? Remember that, and you will do well. So Shalom, here is this guy who, who's the great-grandson of Korah, and God chooses him, uses David the king and Samuel the prophet to choose him to be the chief over the principal gatekeepers, over all the gatekeepers who are guarding the gates of the house of the Lord, the very dwelling place of God, and the treasuries. It's a very entrusted position of high responsibility. This is only because of the grace of God that the sons of this Rebel Korah would be chosen for a task like that. Now, Shalom has some sons, and his oldest son actually doesn't follow the family tradition of being a gatekeeper. His oldest son is Mattathiah. Mattathiah is a baker. Now, again, we hear the word baker. We think Pillsbury Doughboy. We you know, think some rotund guy that, that Mattathiah would be this baker, and, you know, and he's making some pita bread for people and focaccia and maybe some donuts and Bismarck's and some old-fashioned and some sourdough and maple bars. And, okay, that's not what we're talking about here. It's actually a, a far more sacred position because it tells us about him as a baker. A Levite named Mattathiah, the firstborn son of Shalom. Which, by the way, what, what did Shalom do? Don't forget that because there's going to be a quiz. The Korahite, all right? So now he's the great-great-grandson of Korah, was entrusted with the responsibility for baking the offering bread. We're not talking about maple bars here. Let me tell you what we're talking about. If you've ever read through the Old Testament, you may have come across a word that was like odd, strange to you. Showbread or shoebread, S-H-E-W bread, shoebread, showbread. It's mentioned multiple times about the temple and the tabernacle and all this table and all this stuff. And you're like, what is that? Let me tell you what that is. The showbread was also referred to as the bread of presence. 
And in Exodus chapter 25, you can read it on your own, God was giving very specific instructions about his tabernacle, the tent of meeting, what was to go on. And in the tabernacle, in the tent of meeting, there was a table, not the Ark of the Covenant, we'll get to that. This was a table about the size of a small coffee table overlaid with gold. And there was specific instructions that on that table, there should always be the showbread, the bread of the presence. It would be 12 loaves of bread, six on each side, and they're always to be there. Little guess, 12 loaves might represent 12 tribes, the nation of Israel. These 12 loaves are set aside and they're consecrated to the Lord in the Lord's presence in the same way that the 12 tribes were set aside as a holy nation consecrated to the Lord. And here are these 12 loaves of bread. And these loaves of bread were always to be on the, on the table. And they were to be changed out every week. And so they were probably baked on Friday to put on new ones on the Sabbath. Because it goes on to say, some of the the Kohathite brothers were in charge of preparing uh, for every Sabbath the bread set out on the table. So every Sabbath they'd bring 12 new loaves of bread. The old loaves that had been there for a week were now consumed by the priest. Some of you say, that's great. Give the pastors the day old stuff. It's cheaper that way. It makes economic sense. That is not what this was about. This was a very sacred, holy bread set apart to God. And the fact that the priest got to eat it, it was like like a closed communion. If you were not a priest, you were not allowed to eat it. The Levites in general were not even allowed to eat it. Only the priests were allowed to eat it because of this holiness and this sacredness and this consecration. Now, There's everything within me that really wants to spend a lot of time on a rabbit trail. I'll just go for a little bit. So here is this bread, consecrated, you know, showing the provision of God, the the consecration of of God's people, the holiness of the priests, the closed nature of all that. John chapter 6, Jesus comes along and he says, I am the bread of life. And he talks to the Jews. He said, your forefathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. And then he says, I am the bread and Anyone may eat of this bread and live. Not just the priest. This is now open up to anybody. This is, again, you see this picture of Jesus saying, you know, you're, you're all going to have access to God. Anyone can eat of this bread and live. Not only that, but if they eat, I am the living bread. If they eat this living bread from heaven, then they will live forever. And then he goes on to say, and this bread is my flesh, which people said, what are you talking about? We're out of here, you cannibal. And they left. But then later at the, at the Last Supper, he takes the bread and he breaks it in front of his disciples and said, this is my body broken for you. Take and do this in remembrance of me. Oh, I could just go on and on, but we'll stop there. So you have Mattathiah and he's a baker, a very sacred baker with this bread that was set apart to God, consecrated for his purposes, showing his, uh, his, his provision to the people and their position as his people and he being their God a son of Korah. It's only by the grace of God. Well, the sons of Korah were more than just gatekeepers and more than just bakers. There were also some that were musicians. And when I say they were musicians, they weren't just guys that had a guitar and learned three chords, and one of them plays Smoke on the Water, and the other one's been working on Stairway to Heaven, and they're hoping to get a gig because they got a garage band. This band, these groups, these magicians, these musicians are set apart to God. All right, let's look at this. Those who were musicians, heads of Levite families, stayed in the rooms of the temple and were exempt from other duties. Now, that musicians still like to hold to that. 
<laughs> hey, I'm with the band. I don't do anything. Yeah, sorry if you're a musician. They were exempt from other duties because they were responsible for the work day and night. They're in the temple. They're in these rooms in the temple, and they've got this duty. And one of the musicians, and I just love this, one of the musicians is a guy named He-Man, which is so cool. Not like He-Man, Masters of the Universe. Not even like He-Man's Pastors of the Universe. He's He-Man, like you've heard of, of Conan the Barbarian. He's He-Man the Musician. He plays music. The word He-Man, the word He-Man literally translated is faithful. Look at this. His, his you know, great-great-great-great-great-great-grandfather, Korah, was anything but faithful. Korah was unfaithful. Korah was rebellious. Korah was obstinate. Korah had a callous heart. Korah was arrogant. But this son of Korah, this Korahite named Heman, he's faithful. And he's set apart for God's purposes to bring about worship of the Most High God. Look at this, what it says. These are the men David put in charge. Again, not just a, hey, who can play really good music? David, the king, selects, puts in charge of the music in the house of the Lord after the ark came to rest there. We're not talking about Noah's ark. We're talking about the ark of the covenant, different story, the box, the dwelling place of God, the mercy seat right there in the middle of that. The ark came to rest there. They ministered with music before the tabernacle, the tent of meeting again, which has been guarded by Shalom and his clan, has the bread there by Mattathiah and his guys, and now they've got worship going on by um, He-Man and his guy until Solomon built the temple of the Lord in Jerusalem. They performed their duties according to the regulations laid down for them. Here are the men who served together with their sons. From the Kohathites, He-Man, the faithful one, the musician. And then it just kind of goes on this this long lineage, I won't bore you with all that, the son of Joel, the son of Samuel, the prophet, so that's his grandfather, goes on for two other verses with all the son of the son of the son of the son of the son of, you get down a little bit farther, the son of Tehath, the son of Asir, the son of, uh, that guy again, the son of Korah, the son of Ichar, the son of Kohath, the son of Levi, the son of Israel. So here you have He-Man, who's a part of this line, the Korahites, the sons of Korah, and he's put in this position to bring about worship before the Almighty God when the Ark of the Covenant is brought in. Now just look at these three individuals. One of them guards the entrance and is entrusted to oversee the treasury of the very dwelling place of the Lord. A very honored, a very sacred, a very, a very prestigious position. One of them is the chief baker that brings about this sacred bread that has been instructed for, for years to be there every single week before the Lord, consecrated to him, the bread of the presence of God. And one of them is involved with bringing about worship when the Ark of the Covenant, the very mercy seat of God, is present. You see how incredible it is that Korah, as rebellion and as obstinate as he was, that God in his grace redeems his family line and hand-selects them for God's purposes. Now, the Ark of the Covenant, some of you are familiar with, gets captured by the Philistines. That's a whole other story we won't go into. But then the, the Israelites get it back, and they bring it. And this is what we read. 
It says, and the Levites carried the ark of God with the poles on their shoulders as Moses commanded in accordance with the word of the Lord. David told the leaders of the Levites to appoint their brothers as singers to sing joyful songs. Joyful songs. Nothing in the minor key. We don't want any funeral dirges. Let's make this happy. Accompanied by musical instruments. So he says, to the Levites, he says, we want, I want you guys to appoint someone for this. Lyres, harps, and cymbals. So the Levites appointed He-Man, son of Joel, from his brothers Asaph. He's another story too, which is really cool, but don't, no time for that. So the Levites, they're saying, He-Man is our guy. Not just because he's the most talented musician. There was something about he's faithful. He, he's got this anointing on him. God's hand is upon him. God has chosen him, and they recognize that as well. So they choose He-Man to lead this whole procession. Now, again, some of you are familiar, when they're bringing the Ark of the Covenant into Jerusalem, there's this huge parade, enormous party, all of this worship going on, all of this music. David is going crazy. David the king is dancing. You know that story. He can dance, he can jive, having the time of his life. See that boy, watch that scene, dig in the dancing king. He's going crazy, he's a maniac, maniac on the floor, and he's dancing like he's never danced before. He likes to party, he likes to get down. All he wants to do is dance, dance, dance. There's a big dance party going on, and David is leading that. His, his uh, wife, Michael, is, is filled with disgust. That whole story, we don't have time for, but it's really cool. Get the ark into Jerusalem, and he tells all of the priests and all the women to minister before the Lord. This is a great thing. The Ark of the Covenant represented the very, the very presence of God, his power. This was a huge thing nationally. It was a huge thing economically, military-wise, uh, and, and, and spiritually to have the Ark of the Covenant back. And while everybody's ministering before the Lord, with them, it says, with them were He-Man, here's our guy again, the faithful mu musician, and Jedithan, and the rest of those chosen and designated by name to give thanks to the Lord, for his love endures forever. He-Man and Jedithan were responsible for the sounding of the trumpets and cymbals and for the playing of the other instruments for sacred song. Look at this. He-Man designated by name, chosen, set apart for this purpose, to worship before the Lord, to give thanks to the Lord. 16 greats before. Great, 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 16 times. Grandfather. Korah is filled with arrogance, selfishness, rebellion, and he's grumbling. 16 generations later, his great, great 16th grandson is called by name to give thanks to the Lord. The exact opposite. What you see is that he goes from grumbling to gratitude. And it's by the grace of God that God would choose this line, Korah's line, the sons of Korah, the Korahites, to be set in such a position, such a holy, sacred position to worship before the Almighty God. It's an amazing thing. Okay, fast forward 150 more years. See, I tell you, we're covering a lot of ground. 150 more years, the nation's split, it's been rough times. Jehoshaphat is the, is the king of the southern kingdom. He's coming up against an, a massive army, and there's no way that they're going to win. They're going to be wiped out. The word of the Lord comes to the Levites, to Jehoshaphat, and says this. Three things. Do not be afraid. And do not despair. 
Second thing, the battle is not yours. It belongs to the Lord. And the third thing, you watch and see the deliverance of God. Jehoshaphat starts jumping. Great jumping, Jehoshaphat. He's all excited about this. So he fires up the worship leaders to praise God for what he's going to do. This is 650 years after Korah. And look what we read. Then some Levites from the Kohathites and Korahites. 650 years later, his line continues on. They stood up and praised the Lord, the God of Israel, with very loud voice. God continues to use this bloodline of this rebel man in his grace to fulfill his purposes and his plan, even 650 years later. It's an amazing thing that you see how God, so good, would continue throughout the history of Israel to use the Korahites, the sons of Korah, to bring about praise and worship for his purposes. And it's not just in Israel's story either, because it's in our story as well. Some of you would say, the book of Psalms is one of your favorite books. It's a powerful book. Some of you would say that the book of Psalms has gotten you through some of the darkest nights of your soul, of your whole life. And we often think the book of Psalms, David the psalmist, you know, and all that, that's, that, while that's true, in the book of Psalms, 11 of the Psalms are attributed to the sons of Korah. That these guys wrote Psalm 42, 44 through 49, 84 and 85, 87 and 88. And some of the words that some of you hold on to that are written down that you've memorized come out of these Psalms from the sons of Korah. Now listen, if you grew up in the American evangelical church in the 70s, 80s, and early 90s, these Psalms were a part of a battle, the worship wars. You know, when there's this choir robes and a band and the organ and drums and, and hymns and choruses and all that war that went on in all those decades. And all these newfangled choruses that repeat over and over and over again and where was, you know, all this stuff. You know, part of that. Some of you were raised in that and you cut your teeth on the choruses that came from the sons of Korah. Let me give you an example. Some of you won't have a clue about any of this, and you're okay. I'm glad you missed those wars. If you ever grew up singing, clap your hands, all you people, shout unto God with a voice of triumph, clap your hands, all you people. Okay, well, three of you did that. <laughs> Who wrote that song? The sons of Korah. Oh, we don't like this new music. It's 3,000 years old. How about this one? Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised in the city of our God, in the mountains. Who wrote that song? It's going to be the same answer every time. Just go, even if you didn't live those years, just answer it. The sons of Korah. How about this one? Be still and know that I am God. Be still and know. Who wrote it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. The one that maybe bridged the gap between the old folks and the young folks. As the deer panteth for the water, so my soul longeth. Who wrote it? Sons of Korah. 
Another one that wasn't quite as mainstream. Why so downcast, oh my soul? Put your hope in God. Put your hope in God. Who wrote it? Sons of Korah. They wrote some of the most incredible psalms. And it came from the bloodline of this rebel. Why? Because of God's grace and his ability to redeem anybody and anything. I think maybe one of the reasons they kept the moniker Sons of Korah, Korah Heights, because we see it throughout Scripture, was as a reminder, a warning of what Korah, their great, 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 great grandfather did. And maybe it was in remembering what their great grandfather did and how arrogant he was before Moses and Aaron and even before the Lord, his contemptuous attitude before the Lord that would cause his his bloodline to write these words out of Psalm uh, 46. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. Kor was trying to exalt himself. And maybe this was a little, just a little toss in about what happened to their great grandpappy Korah. I will be exalted in the earth. Or how about this? Here's a little quiz for you today. What did Shalom do? Very good. A. Better is one day in your courts than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of the wicked. And maybe they're writing, you know what? I would much rather be like Grandpappy Shalom than Grandpappy Korah. Even if for just one day. Just one day to be chosen by God, to be set apart, to be selected by him. And when you look at this story and you see what happens through all of it, you begin to understand that the story of Korah is very dark. The Bible never says anything good about Korah. But in his grace and redemption, Korah's sons, the sons of Korah, and the Korahites, the Bible never says anything negative about them. And maybe it was the warning of seeing what had happened to him that would cause the sons of Korah to break the chain and redeem the name. That Korah, the story of Korah, was a dead-end story. But because of God and his goodness, the story continues on, and the sons of Korah become a thoroughfare of the grace and redemption of our great God. In 1944, my dad and his twin brother Daryl, eight years old, were sitting in church one Sunday morning, little church in Oklahoma, the preacher was preaching. And the back doors of this church opened up in the middle of the sermon, interrupting the sermon. And my dad told me as a little boy, he and his brother turned around and looked back at those doors in the middle aisle of this church. And there in the doorway was their grandfather, James Smith Whitenack. And in the middle of the sermon, he walked down the aisle with tears streaming down his face, and he came to the front of the, of the church, and he looked up at the preacher, and he said, I need Jesus. I need Jesus. Here was this convicted felon, murderer, moonshining, bootlegging, gambling, you know, dog-running individual. Very dark story. Served his time in prison. And God redeemed it. 
See, that's the beautiful story and the rest of the story of Korah and the sons of Korah. That God can redeem anybody, anything, any, any family line. See, it doesn't matter what your parents, your grandparents, or your family line did. It can change. All summer long, we've been looking at stories worth telling. But what about our story? You know, like, what about your story? What about my story? We all have dark chapters. We all have that stuff. But what about our story? I mean, think about this. Korah's story is set up in Scripture as a warning what not to do. The sons of Korah's story are this example of God's grace that glorifies him. I like what Andy Stanley said. He said, every decision you make becomes a permanent part of your story. Like, like in the moment we think, well, this is just here now. He says, no, 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 you've got to back up and see, this is going to be a part of your permanent story. And then he asked this question, what story do you want to tell or what story do you want to have told about you? What do you want your kids to say about your life? What do you want your grandchildren to say? Do you want your story to be a warning? Don't do what she did. Don't do what he did. Or do you want your story to be an example? Look at what God can do. Look at what the grace of God can do. Look at the life that God has called us to. What story are we going to live? I want to go back one more time to Psalm 84. It's one of the sons of Korah, probably reflecting on Korah, wrote, How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord Almighty. My soul yearns, even faints, for the courts of the Lord. My heart and my flesh cry out for the living God. That's not what Korah wanted. Korah was all about himself. He said, I'm all about God. Verse 10 Better is one day in your courts than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of the wicked. See, one of Korah's biggest problems was he suffered FOMO. You know, that fear of missing out. I'm missing out on something. I'm kind of settling here. And how often we do the same thing. Look what he writes here. For the Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor. No good thing does he withhold from those whose walk is blameless. You want a fear of missing out on something? Be afraid of missing out on the life that God has created you to live. And we say, well, well what, I'll miss out on this. I'll miss out on these years. I'll miss out on this experience. I'll miss out on that. No, no, no. If it's outside of God's will, you're missing out on the best. Because no good thing does he withhold from those whose walk is blameless. And what if, what if we just said, I want my life to be a story, not as a warning. The past, yes, but from here on out, I want it to be an example of the grace of God. I want to live my life in such a way that my life becomes a story worth telling to my children and my grandchildren and the people I work with and my roommates and my teammates and my neighbors. I want to live that life for the glory of God. I don't want to be like Korah. I want to be like the sons of Korah. That's a story worth telling. And that's what our God invites us to. So, at the end of this, here's the cool thing about being pastor. Sometimes you make requests and they actually get granted. So I made a request, since we're looking at the sons of Korah, that we would sing 
like an old school song, like retro, like 3,000 years ago. It comes out of Psalm 84. It was written, rewritten in 1995. We haven't sung it here for a bajillion years. If you've never heard it, it's so old it's brand new. So I'm going to invite you to stand as we sing Better Is One Day. If you remember it, sing it out loud. If not, enjoy this new song.